Welcome to the next episode of Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers. How are you, James? Introduce my affiliation. You're at uh, Northeastern University. Well, look at him, getting it yeah, right like a real right. boy. That's right. Yes, I am. Or at least I'm about to be, which is close enough. How That's are right. you? Yeah, I'm good. Um still going ahead and uh almost unblind unblinding our um our latest oxytocin study with uh the one that we did in autism so that'll be exciting once we actually that, that must be an absolute thrill ride no it is you wouldn't believe it so of course no, be- i wouldn't believe it <laughs> because we're um we're doing this properly we will actually do the analysis um first we're going to get the groups um revealed so we'll know you know person got uh, treatment a this visit do all the analyses um so of course if we get an effect we're not going to know whether the effect was actually due to placebo or the actual drug do all the main uh, analyses and then we actually get revealed what the conditions are so that'll be that'll be good you're too honest for your own good how do you possibly expect to pull specious effects you can turn into more money out of such a process i know i know <laughs> how will i how will i possibly p-hack how will you indeed sir yeah. You could study something real. <laughs> well, we'll we'll leave that to the next uh for the next grant. Now, oh yeah, we're always next grant, next episode, next like, next one. James's Just, criticisms of me breathing in and out. Yeah, you know, we should probably leave them for a while. Now, Never of, mind me being a Mister Negative Nancy. Well, you what else you, is going on? You mentioned p-hacking, and uh, we, we, I just came across this paper over the past week, which was, uh, which was titled Misconceptions of the P-Value Among Chilean and Italian Academic Psychologists, which, uh, which I sent your way recently, and I thought it would be an interesting did, one yeah. to, to, to talk about. It's um, a pretty... I thought this was a... Um, I know there's been similar papers in the past. I thought this was pretty sophisticated. Mm. Well, it, um, it was. It's a it's a very interesting series of questions that they've asked people, and I'm not sure the the, the overall relevance of Chilean and Italian. It's just simply like these are the samples we have access to, and no one an specifically the, asked the Chileans before. <laughs> but I did. Do you think they found more or less what everyone else found? Yeah, it was pretty similar. I think what they found was it wasn't as necessarily as strong as other samples, but they found pretty similar effects, which uh, okay. I, saw, I saw some someone on Twitter actually say that uh, this is the, the most replicable effect in psychology is that we don't actually understand what p-values are. But it's been shown in different populations. <laughs> especially, <laughs> it's so really that's, bad. You'd say, you'd say that the central point of the paper is the fact that there are common misconceptions about the p-values and people went out looking for them again and found mm, them again right. but in well this remind sample, me why i should be excited well well this sample was uh in in a, in a set of people or that should technically know better because they teach methodology courses in did psychology. they all teach methodology daniel um I don't to, think they to... all did. How do you find 160 Chilean methodological instructors? Well, everyone teaches a bit of methodology on the side. I'll, ha- I'll have to I'll have to look into that. Okay. But a lot of them. Well, that's a lot just of them weird. Were... I thought it was a homogenous sample of people with different jobs. 
Okay. Well, well, I'll have to look a bit closer into that. But anyway, these were all academic psychologists, and uh, and they were given given statements and uh, tested on whether they actually understood what the p value was. But a lot let's of the- me test. Let's me test you and everyone who's listening. All right, everyone, go to pattern paper. <laughs> yes, we're doing this. All right, here we go. Description of the participants. That's no good. Short, angry. No, James. That's racist. Um. Okay. Select true statements. Okay, here's an easy one. The mm-hmm. value of P is smaller than 0.001 directly confirms that the effect size was large. Don't answer yet. Everyone out there in the world, let it flow through you like a brook or something like that. Like any designated water course. That enters your rib cage. I don't know. The value of P is smaller than 0.001 directly confirms that the effect size was large. Okay, Daniel, true or false? False. Definitely false. Definitely false. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that, that really speaks to um, that one of the main fallacies of, of P-values. In that, oh, I know um, you're getting all excited about this, but we've got 10 whole special oh, questions. Okay, okay. All right, go, go to the next one. He's so excited. The moment the moment you mentioned that something might be going wrong somewhere, he does the same thing as me. Oh, like, James, people are wrong on the internet somewhere. I need to get excited about it. Goon. Right. Here's a fun one. The probability of the result of the statistical test is known, assuming that the null hypothesis is true. That seems to be phrased strangely. Um, it, it is phrased a bit weird, but technically... True, yeah. Right. Given that P equals 0.001, the result obtained makes it possible to conclude that the differences are not due to chance. Um, not necessarily false. Ah, he's very certain of himself, isn't it? Isn't it, though? Yeah, these are, um, these are good... These are good slippery questions. So, the basic structure of the paper. We take this group of questions. We inflict them on people from Chile and Italy. Well, uh, 2,300 people. So their response rate is shit. No offense. What's it about? Uh, so we've got 150 people running back out of 2,000. So it's 8% or something. Yeah. Mm. That's terrible. Um, you might want to be more directed than that. So, it turns out that normal researchers from whatever department are just as susceptible to accepting false statements about p-values as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, it's only a couple because, I mean... They found that out of all these people, they split them into non-methodology instructors and methodology instructors. Now, there's a fair amount of methodology instructors within psychology. And this is with psychologists specifically, isn't it? Academic psychologists, yeah. Yeah. So, to get someone who got an answer wrong, and you can get an answer wrong because of a bit of bad wording or because you had a bad day or because your pen slipped or... And this is one answer out of 10 questions, was Mm. half of them. Non-methodology instructors, people who teach something that isn't, they probably use statistics within 
daily life and or research. But 74% of them endorsed at least one wrong answer. Which is mm. actually a better result than previous, where it's more like 90. Or in one, in one study, 97. That was in the 80s. So, what's the conclusion from that? Look, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, a lot of it comes down to the software that we use. Think about it. So much of the mm. software that we use, particularly, I'm thinking more and more SPSS, your point and click type type stuff. It all points towards, do you get significant p value? Look at SPSS. There's a big asterisk when you when you reach you know 0.05. Yeah, um, I'm surprised. Right. Like I'm surprised that the screen doesn't. Does doesn't flash and little balloons come down your screen when you press an analysis and? I believe you can get that as an add-on toolbox. Yeah, <laughs> it's called the Social Psychology Sandpit Special. The... <laughs> get get that into ya. Yeah, well, but but look at the software. A lot of it is built towards um, going up to point going up to point oh five. Um, but I think as well, it's just uh, it's easy. It's easy to have this this dichotomy of. Was it an important result or wasn't an important result? Once you start going into effect sizes, which is what you really should be doing, then um, then that takes a bit more explaining because you can go, well, we got a Cohen's D or we got a Hedges G of this, and this can be interpreted as this. But then if you go right, something, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. As per usual, you've gone running merrily off into the distance without actually explaining something properly. I'm I'm going to get you to explain that properly. You can't just go. Uh, effect sizes, ha, and expect people to figure out exactly what you meant. Well, one of the problems with p-values is that um, it's affected a lot by sample size. So if you have a p-value of, say, 0.01, um, you, and if, if two studies have p-values of 0.01, you actually can't say that those two studies are equivalent because... One of those studies may have had a sample of 20 people and one of them may have had a sample of 20,000 people. Now, a good example of this uh, this fallacy was um, there was this... Do you remember that Facebook study that came out? Um, there was a lot of ethical questions around it. Yes. And Where they it, randomly pulled people's Facebook data out. Uh, they didn't know. No, uh... no they, this, this is the one where they, um, they manipulated uh, the positive or negative sentiment um, things in their feed and gave some people... Um, like fifty-one percent positive and forty-nine percent negative. Yeah, and then they looked at. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, that's they right. They were actually changing what people saw. That was the ethical problem: is that they were participating is, in something where they were being shown stuff. Which is what they do anyway already, but they actually made it an experiment and collected the data. Uh, so they showed some people positive, some people negative, and they found that people that were shown the um the negative stuff were more likely to post negative stuff. Now, being Facebook, their sample size was absolutely enormous. And the p-value was like point, you know, hundred zeros oh one, And people were going, look, look at that p-value. This study is, inc mm. is incredible. But when you have, <laughs> when you have a, um, an enormous sample size like Facebook did, when you actually look at the effect size, so what is this? Is this result actually mean anything? The effect size was tiny. Absolutely tiny. So you can yeah, have an course. enormous. You can have an enormous you p think, value. Think about, think about the. Yeah, look, it's, it stands perfectly to reason when you think about the practicalities involved in how it's calculated. 
Hmm. No one should have been surprised. Hmm. And that that sort of links up to another fallacy is that um, a lot of people do um, uh, do well. Not really a fallacy, but it's 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 bordering on fraud. How they they're peaking at um, at their analyses before they actually complete. So they've done an experiment. They've done twenty people. They run their analysis. Oh, you know, it's 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 0.06. Let's just run another five people. Oh, you, you know, it's 0.55, another five. And the thing is, with, with, with p-values, if you have enough people, you will get significance eventually. And that, for me, is one of the biggest arguments against using p-values. Mm-hmm. He Big. just did that. Uh, you people can't see it on the podcast. He just did that face that means he's serious. Yeah, yeah. No, but it, it, it's really, it's really frustrating. And okay, you, you hardly see anyone. It's getting a little bit better, and uh, but you hardly see everyone, anyone actually reporting effect sizes in their papers. Now, this is something which is pretty straightforward to calculate yourself. Uh, what happens when? Look, I have a lot of results where you've got four within subjects conditions mm-hmm. and people are run on two different things and then you end up looking at a contrast between level one and level three or something like that. Is it always simple to pull out effect sizes? Um, well, when you're looking at the online calculators, it's, it's more straightforward of pulling out an effect size, um, when you're looking at basic F, F tests or T tests, um, there are slightly different conditions if you're doing an F test for a repeated measures ANOVA versus a, mm-hmm. um, a between subjects. So it's quite similar, but it's, it okay, is so, but it is different. There's a layer of complication involved. There, yeah. There so is a layer what of you're complic- saying is the next time I have to do this, I just send the analysis to you and you do it for me. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, but it's not that straightforward. Oh, and, okay. So yeah. you won't, you won't mind doing mine. Well, it's not, it's not that hard. Yeah, shoot, 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 shoot it my way. But it's... You have to say that now because people are listening. <laughs> and I have, to, I have to do it now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's some effect size things are, are presented. It's an, it's an easy option within, say, SPSS. Um, yep. JASP, which is, uh, which is the show's favorite uh, uh, software, uh, statistical software. Uh, I still very... love you, JASP. You complete JASP. me. JASP, JASP is great. They make it very easy to report uh, effect sizes as well. You just tick a few boxes and you have the you have the effect size um, reported there. But uh, yeah, not many people do it. And whenever I'm reviewing papers, um, you know, maybe twenty percent might actually do an effect size, but the rest that don't, I just say, please report the effect size. Authors must hate me, but you know, it's um, it makes it. And the, the the great thing about the effect size is that actually makes it easy to compare between studies. So an an effect size like a hedges G of you know point point six in one study means that the effect in another study with a hedges G of point six is actually comparable, unlike a p value, which you can't compare between studies. There you go. There you go. Who knew that all that meta analysis would be good for something? Well, it, no. it, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, now, now, you, now you're really getting me started. Now there, there's a guy who wrote this fantastic book. Um, Cummins from University of Melbourne, I believe. I don't remember his first name, but he wrote a fantastic book that came out a year or two ago called "Understanding the New Statistics." Really good way. Um, um it's, it's Greg or Greg George. Cummins. Greg, yeah, yes. I think it's 
G, we're, we're correct in the notes. Uh, but fantastic book. And uh, one of the big things that he was pushing was this idea of meta-analytical thinking. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't advocating for everyone to do meta-analysis, but he was saying if you actually understand the concept of how meta-analyses are done, then you can better actually understand um, the, you know, how to interpret statistics. Because when it comes to meta-analysis, you have to actually calculate the effect sizes or a common effect size. And that's the key thing is that p-values aren't common between studies, but effect sizes, they are common, common between sizes, uh, b- b- between studies, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, an- an- another really important thing that you get from reading that textbook and from this idea of meta-analytic thinking is that um, a lot of people think that if you take two studies and one of them is statistically significant and the other one isn't, then these studies are actually different. Now, if you do meta-analyses or if you have this kind of mindset of meta-analytical thinking, then you know this is false. Not necessarily, it could be true, but it's probably false. Um, but a lot of people think this and that when they're doing their systematic, when they're doing their narrative reviews and their papers and going, this study found this and this study found this, um, they just assume that studies are different just because one found a difference and one didn't when that's just not actually the case. Huge. Uh, so what you're, what you're talking about is that people turn the the P cutoff that they're using into a categorical answer. Yeah. It worked or it didn't. And then like they a, use that as a comparison. It's like a big Trump wall. Uh, just studies <laughs> studies on this side and studies on that side and you just can't Uh Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down, <laughs> tear down the wall. wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh I've had to yell at people in a lot of different contexts. The saying the intervention group has a p value compared to the baseline of 0.03, but the non intervention group has a p value compared to baseline of 0.085. So basically, what we did worked and the other thing didn't. <laughs> the, when, when you have to write politely back to people who send you stuff like that, it's very it's very difficult to avoid trying to 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 put in what you really think <laughs> um, I got an email from Jordan the other day. Hi, Jordan, and he said, oh, everyone's always bitching about money. He said amongst other things, I thought this was an interesting point. you know everyone's always bitching about money, but Part of me feels like we should have a lot less money for science because there's so many people doing it badly. Okay, go on. <laughs> and that's... Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, doing it doing it badly and bodging your way through has always been part of the process. It's, just, it's, <laughs> it's part of the... But when you get errors like that again and again and again and you have to review things and occasionally you work with people who say things are really stupid, part of you goes... We need a purge. <laughs> we need a purge. We need one night a year where I get to email you a bomb and you never get to say this ever again. It's it, At some point in time... And then you get their grant money. Um. Oh, well, I hadn't thought it through that far. It's just the fact that it's one of those continual frustrations. I can't understand why it doesn't go away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Which like the airline industry, they used to just run planes into mountains and go, whoops, how sad. And they figured out it was a bad idea. And then they had a huge industry-wide commitment to making sure planes didn't run into mountains anymore. And eventually everything got better and better and better and better. Now they have this kind of culture of success where they, for the vast majority of the time, get the plane off the ground and stick it back on the ground with everything reasonably intact. But, but um, that, that comes down to different standards of journals. More, more uh, yeah, I suppose so. The like problem with that like is um, super journal. The problem, the problem with that is, there's all there's there's many there's many fancy journals with good reputations and which are completely divorced from things that they will or won't accept. A lot of the time, they're really oh, it's a really good journal. They won't accept anything that's that blatantly terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but there's. There's an awful lot of interplay, so your journal's not a guarantee of much. It's not a guarantee, no. Also, um, you, you're likely to get uh, what I think of as far more sophisticated crap. <laughs> analyses for the sake of analyses. Well, you know, it's, oh, we, we're, sending, we're sending this to psychological science. It's a good journal. Well, you're going to have to try very hard to hide the fact that absolutely nothing whatsoever happened then. <laughs> So that um, the idea the idea of less money is stuck in my head. Or the other problem, of course, is how do we determine who gets who gets the less money and who yeah. gets thrown in the sea, which is very very difficult. Um. Anyway, statistics. Well, what I, fun? I, I think um one of the uh one another big problem with with p values is that there's a big difference between something that's statistically significant versus something that's clinically significant yeah oh god yes yeah that's so, a huge problem it's 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 a massive problem and often you get these misinterpretations of oh look we, we found an effect but um th- this is more in the context if you're looking at some sort of treatment study for instance um we're, we're, we're trying to test um you know new drug x on depression and uh if you have an enormous sample um you have a lot of these massive uh, multi-site studies now where you're getting hundreds of participants coming in per per site and like like the cases with p-values, if you test enough people, you're likely to find an effect. But coming back to the Facebook thing, what does it actually mean? Um, well, firstly, is okay. Tell like- tell tell the nice people how that differs from, say, a non-inferiority trial. Well, in in these types of trials, I mean, the good thing with depression is that you actually um, there is a gold standard for treatment response, which is the uh, the Hamilton um, the Hamilton uh, scale. And typically, success, a really successful trial, is people will um, uh, reduce their scores by 50% on the, um, on the Hamilton scale. So you may get a, uh, you know, a statistically significant improvement, but that doesn't really mean much for the drug or for the treatment if you don't actually ha- it doesn't actually have a big impact on the Hamilton scores. So it's a, it's a really good functional measure. Did this, like, did this thing actually work? And uh, you know, it's a lot easier not doing clinical research. It's very oh, easy to make fun of clinicians. It is so hard. Like I, here we I, go. I love not doing clinical research. I'm not going to start doing that anytime soon. It's it's the worst when you get when you get pot shots from from people on on Twitter. Oh look look at this clinical trial. Um, <laughs> they are they are so hard to run. Um, an incredible incredible amount of work. Um, yeah, when you think of it, think of it this way. It's hard to run a bad clinical trial. Uh, 
done correctly, yeah, super hard. <laughs> so your, your your price of admission is I mean it's a ton of money. Yeah. And a ton of time. And an awful lot of things that you have to consider. And Which, it's it's an it's an investment. It's not just it's not just knocking off an analysis. It is it it involves by virtue of what you're doing, the full gamut of processing and registration and finding mm. people and administering everything, making sure it all goes right, and then some really careful handling of the data that comes in, and then hopefully the fact that what you were planning on doing in the first place has all been written down in plain English elsewhere. <laughs> It's Did you an- see? There was a thing a couple of years ago. Speaking of the the the, the follow through on these things, where I think it was uh, the the Guardian guy. What's his name? The guy, the guy, the bad science guy, Goldacre. Yes. They yeah, they went back and found a series of clinical trial registrations, <laughs> and they were looking at whether or not the initially stated outcomes were at all related to what was being reported in the papers and they found something like 20 without even looking very hard Mm. and they wrote to all the editors going by the definitions that you've provided for whether or not this stuff is accurate these are no good what are you going to do and if memory serves me correctly and it might not but if it does they did nothing Mm. That's concerning. It's really concerning, and it really means it's up to the reviewers um, to actually check when they're reviewing a clinical trial. What did the actual? What were the actual outcomes that that were, that were put in? Um, that that's a, even if it's registered. Yeah. Now, good journals will actually say you have to register this trial in order to um, to get this published here. And I was really sure. disappointed. There, there was um, a journal which I, I generally hold in high regard. Just published you can, in Oxford. You can you can say what they are. Dan. No, I've, I've published there a few times, so I don't. I haven't actually read the paper super carefully, but I did a control F for searching for clinical trial registration. This is an oxytocin trial, um, pretty comprehensive one, um, and it wasn't registered at all. So I, I'm not really going to believe the results whatsoever. They weren't even that strong to begin with, to be honest. But uh, it wasn't registered, which uh, for a clinical trial is just. Uh, Big, uh, big, big no-no. Let, that, let is a, that is a huge red flag. A Massive. great big wavy one. Yeah. Um, so it's... Uh, I've seen a few instances of people who have retrospectively uh, registered their trial. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Retrospectively registered. So, so that they do the trial, yeah, get the results, do the analysis, <laughs> and then, and then they, um, they register their trials. Yeah. <laughs> not, Don't not screenshot as... the face I just made. It doesn't happen as much uh that doesn't happen as much nowadays, but um that that has been a thing. So it's uh it can be a really really big issue, but um yeah, you you got to be checking against the I think the biggest thing is was the primary outcome that was reported in the paper the primary outcome that was registered because a lot of people can um do their primary outcome, but then they can register like 50 secondary outcomes. And go look! Look, we found the result, and this is what we were planning the entire time when that was actually false. Yeah, the the whole sort of secondary outcome creep, I think, is a 
is the response of people go, well, we, we, we want it to work somehow. We need to have a practical solution to be able to gin this up into something that works. <laughs> and so it's fine. what should we do? Well, we should register at outcomes of everything from toenail growth to eye color changing. Yeah. And and, I think mean, it's um, fine if you... Something, if will, something will work. And then at the, the worst case scenario, we can just point that out and say, oh, it's a secondary outcome. But it turns out it was right all along. We predicted it. You predicted everything. So shush. Yeah, yeah, big, uh, big problem. Well, we'll uh, take a quick break and then we will be back very soon. Yes, we will. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Uh, we are really appreciative of all the comments that we get on Facebook and uh, and Twitter. If uh, you want to support the show, that is uh, that is a great way to do it. Tell your friends. Um, as always, you can also rate us on iTunes and even leave a comment on iTunes about uh, how you're enjoying the show um, or, or, or any feedback. But uh, if you do have any feedback... Or you could go over to Dan's house, break in when he isn't there and live in his roof. <laughs> that would be a good way to show appreciation. Great, like great. a possum, like a possum. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, there, there's plenty of ways you can do that. Um, but we've had um, we've had a few people who have uh, who have contacted us on 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 Facebook, James. Oh well, yeah, we're 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 beset with stuff, which is I I like I like to be beset with stuff. I I enjoy it when people write in, um, especially when they write in with intelligent things to say mm. now uh the most scottish man in history wrote in oh but it turns out it's not actually his name i'm assuming jamie i don't know i'm i'm, I'm drawing that from the name because mm. if you were actually called macintosh then jamie i know jamie is is, is a to- one of those toss-up names mm. but if your surname was macintosh it's very likely that you'd be a dude mm. Doesn't matter. Uh, the non-gender specific Jamie McIntosh. Um, this is this is good. I, I like this. I, I think I'm a bit too impressed with pre-registration. And I think it will do more than it can. So it's important for me to hear counter viewpoints. Mm. Do, would you, do you think that's a common perspective? Do you think people are, do you think people oversell? pre-reg because you've sort of my my opinion which is uh and you did a magnificent job of uh people will will notice between podcasts that my mood fluctuates enormously this is because uh i'm not particularly backwards about expressing how i feel at any (laughs) given point in time Uh, i'd say it's part of my charm but it's more like a massive character failing so a lot of the time, because Dan is quite irritating in real life, he catches me when I'm in a terrible mood about something. And sometimes it's the thing that we're going to talk about. It's what we're going to discuss. So sometimes I'm in a great mood and I'm completely together. And sometimes in an utterly foul mood and we record anyway. So if I was being rude about pre-registration, I may have slightly oversold that. But the central point still stands. And the central point is that if you're going to start a system like that, the first thing that's going to happen is people are going to figure out a way to fiddle it. Yeah. The moment you the moment you write it down, you turn it into a series of um, you turn it into a series of expectations. 
but it's better than the current situation. It's it's obviously better than the current situation. And um, if I remember correctly, well, I don't really need to because I was the one saying it. I still know what I think. Oh, isn't life convenient? <laughs> um, but the central point to do with that is that it changes it changes the culture of how you think about these questions in the first place and the idea that it should be committed to record, that that is normal that you'll know what happened before. And if you are trying to circumvent that process, the the fact that it is occurring in the first place is introducing you to the idea that you're probably doing something that's incorrect. Yeah. But not necessarily like fully unethical as much as that's not within the boundaries of what the system is set up to contain. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I you know, so I, I think on. cultural things like that are, are, are super important. Um. It's uh yeah look there's more to say but we already we already did that so we already solved that problem. Um, <laughs> what about one of yours? Uh so we've had we've had some 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 great comments uh, from our comments on on the oversupply in um in, in PhDs. Um, uh, I there's some some poor person working in a lab listening in going. Me. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm part of the I'm part of the unwanted rump. Well, uh, we've had uh, we've had one um, which was uh, you know it's um, the oversupply hurts with a Z so close to my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love the pun. That's um, good. So close to my thesis submittal. Uh, hashtag educated with no prospects. Well, that's just bleak. Yeah, um, it's that's very bleak. That's actually from uh, from Mo, who is uh, who's part of my lab. There's, there's, uh, I know there's at least two people in my lab who listens to the podcast. So, hey, Sarab. Sorry, and, uh, what's the, the name? Mo. Mo. It's, uh, it's short for um, uh, surname, which is, uh, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, <laughs> so I'm not even going to try. Is it Norwegian? Um, no. It's, uh, well, she, uh, she is Norwegian. Mo is Norwegian. Um, but uh, it is, uh, I don't even know where the surname, uh, surname comes from, but it is Mo. Well... Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see you pronounce it and get it wrong, if you don't mind. Okay, Mo Winkle. Oh, that didn't sound very hard. Yeah, that is... Uh... Good, solid name. Yeah, it is, it is a very get, solid wow. name. Wow, we, we get some amazing... I'm always so impressed with people's excellent names. Well, uh, Rude is, is actually adding it to his... Uh, Rude, to Rude, his... Rude Hortensius. He is. He's going to add it to his That's... CV. That, That's uh, that a he, proper name. That he has a that he has a gold legit name. Um, so he he was very happy. And and of course we have a comment from uh, uh, Alex Holcomb has, uh, has has chimed in as well. Who was uh, who was giving us some? <laughs> Alex Holcomb is chimed in. That's what that means. Actually, if you translate Alex Holcomb into Swahili, it means chimed in. Chimed in, and he's uh, he's given us some more information about the badges or the uh, the special Holcomb badges that we were talking <laughs> that we were talking about in our uh, in the in our recent episode. Uh, so so thanks to Alex. Uh, no, we, we, we 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 do we, we do actually uh, really appreciate um, the comments, and um, you do share our podcast a lot. Too. Oh, that's that's good though. People should know what they actually are. I mean, yeah, the, a, the real, a, the real thing. Yeah, I think names that I give things are rarely accurate. <laughs> yeah, so that, there's, there's been some great comments. A few people also, uh, you know, questioning their their career choices of us, you know, talking about the uh, 
the oversupply. But uh, yeah, keep keep the responses and uh, and keep the the tweets and the Facebook comments coming through. Um, and it, it is nice on Facebook because people are actually commenting on the specific episodes uh, themselves. So uh, so that's uh, that's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Did, did oh, we... speaking of which, uh, I got a comment from a fella called Mario Demore. Oh, God, I would give a toe to be called Mario Demore. Another, another fantastic. Oh name. man, I feel, I feel very plain when you, when you meet the rest of the world, and they're not yeah. called. You know, when when I was born, James was the most common boy's name for in the English speaking world. Yeah, sounds about right. Yes, you, it's like just... living in the sea and being a mullet and seeing yeah. a lionfish. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh. I, I was um, I was actually half um. He, he's a he's a nice revelation because um, my name is is so relatively common. I was actually considering um, um, sort of just changing how I was going to be addressed to 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 the middle name of Santiago. Fairly common, but isn't that? Isn't that the um, Latinization or whatever it is of James? That is correct. So it's super common in Latin America. But uh, not very common elsewhere. But I didn't. I didn't decide to go for that. But I was. I was considering doing the uh, doing the switch. It's the capital of Chile. It is as well. Santiago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you're changing from well, Daniel's fifth or something. You're considering changing that to the um, <laughs> to, to a name that's probably used more. It's given the um... more common. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got to talk to if you've got to talk to English speaking people all day. Yeah. That and you know you you you're gonna you're gonna be a very strange Australian when you meet people. They go, oh, what's your name? My name's Santiago de Jesus Quintana. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. How you's going? Santiago here. Santiago here. Here to here to do your science. Nice, Lay it uh, on ya. Nice touch. But yeah, oh. so <laughs> M- Mario. <laughs> Mario gave us. Uh, he, had, he had a comment and a, and a question. Yeah, yeah. You saw you saw this one too. Got a point and a question. Um. Yeah, don't forget to split the difference between science communicator and scientist. That's uh, do I do I agree with that? I mean, th- there are some people whose job is just being a science communicator. Yeah, um, that's very but true. I, but I think if you're a scientist, you have to be. Now, did you see the story that brewed up in Australia over the past week or so? Where some bright journalists decided to go and look at some projects which had been funded by the Australian Research Council. This is, this is oh, a favorite. Oh right, yeah. This, so this is hang a on, favorite. hang on, hang on. This is a, let's let's back backtrack that for for a second. Yeah. Uh, a paper called the Daily Telegraph in Australia, <laughs> um, and that, that, which that's two a... two Australian ears that have had more than a primary school education <laughs> uh, sound something like uh, what's the equivalent long in the US? streak of diarrhea with newsprint on it. <laughs> it's not quite the news of the world where it's a Obama meets space alien on Jupiter's moon. Um, and it's not quite sort of... It's like the sun in England, I suppose. Maybe a touch better. Okay. Close. Close. All right. So it's a, it's a, it's a right-wing tabloid. Uh, it's one of the Murdoch-owned papers. Um, they have some people who write for them. Um, when you look at what they think and the mechanics of how they write and, 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 and you, you look at the center of what they're doing, I could not have less respect for their work and occasionally for them as people as well. 
as people who are divorced of consequences of what they do, who have opinions that are not factually justifiable and are mean, frankly. Mm, Written in a a style that is... I don't even know sometimes how to describe the kind of smugness that comes across with this stuff. Um, Frankly, every time I I, I read it, I feel like I need to shower my lower body. (laughs) It's not a good newspaper. Uh, It's a toilet full of idiots. But you were saying... Yes, so... I knew I'd, I knew I'd get upset about something today. No, it is right, right, <laughs> rightfully so. But with this, um, with this paper, I know this is something which, um, which a, lot of, um, a lot of some unscrupulous journalists do from time to time, is they have a mm. look at what projects got funded by the Australian Research Council... Yeah, that that um, sound funny. That, that sound a sound... bit ridiculous. Yeah, just like, by reading me- the description. You know how, how how does medieval history inform video games? You know stuff like that, which I'm I'm sure is le- le- legitimate research. It won a grant. These things are incredibly competitive. So the whole idea is, um, you know, they look at these grants. They're like, look at this ridiculous, funny sounding thing. We shouldn't be funding this. And the main thing that um, that this article was going for is how can these people go to a working class pub, look at someone in the face and go, this is my research. These people in the pub, they wouldn't fund the research. Would they not? Well, according to, uh, according to the journalist. Well, I look, I know most people that I meet that are barflies have a, a, a pretty good grasp of science, economics, history, sociology, etc., and are in a, a good position to make broad, structural, sweeping statements like, <laughs> you know, uh, where's, where's my bailout? Where's, where's my quantitative easing specifically? <laughs> Don't they know I couldn't make payments on my jet ski? No, no. <laughs> Look, I'm being, I'm being deliberately annoying. The, the point is, it's really hard to get, it's really hard to get that money. And they're not handing it out on a, on the on the basis of well we're done funding all the science now we should give the special little people some money as well. So the 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 story trope that exists and I've seen this in the U.S. at least a couple of times. There was uh there was a, a senator I think here from one of the one of the um southern states I believe. I don't know the appropriate American euphemisms yet. And they were they had a, a list of uh, things that were funded by um one particular scientific body. It might have been the NIH, I'm not sure, but NIH research obviously is health focused. Um and they were they were reading these things out going, look, isn't all this ridiculous? And it's all it's happened I've seen at least three examples of people writing exactly this story. And uh, it's it's some it is it is profoundly ignorant, and all I can think of when I hear these grant titles is, I wonder if I can figure out what that grant is actually about, just from the description that's given by this shallow, venal, gutter journalist shitbag. And sometimes the... you can. There was a, 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 a one that sticks in my head from a while ago. Now this the, the the woman who ran this grant. It was it was something like. We are studying ancient Egypt, Egyptological sex practices. And they went, oh, why would you possibly want to do something like that? And she said, well, look, 
being able to say that this stuff is historically relevant, knowing how it works, knowing how it's culturally situated, is is this, is something that underlies how we do sexual health practice now. And we're dealing with a community of people. Uh, I can't remember if it was in Egypt or if it was. Uh, it it, it might have been. It might have been modern Egyptians, it might have been modern Arabs. This was, this was a very long time ago. They say, look, it's hard to do sexual health stuff with these populations. It's hard to do interventions. Learning about the language that's there, how it's worked, what has historical benefit, what has a background, directly informs how we do this now. And no one's ever looked at this before on the basis of, well, your, uh, you know, you know, your mothers and grandmothers before them, etc., etc., etc. So there was a very definite and quite reasonable angle to the whole thing. But it was portrayed, the media portrayal was, <laughs> studying how people used to fuck 2,500 years ago. What a waste <laughs> of taxpayers' money. Oh, shut up. You have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, look, um, we're off on a tear here. He wanted to make a broader point about science communication. Yeah, that um, the thing is, if you actually speak to all these researchers, I think all of them would have a fantastic go at actually being able to explain. And one of the um, one of the researchers in Australia whose research was singled out, I believe it was on something similar on um, sexual practices or was something. That right on, like. Was that on the conversation? It was. Yeah, it was. dig that out and stick it with the show notes because I will. Um, We'll just dig out the offending article and the, the response to it. I'll, I'll put it And out, obviously, right? that's a, something that's communicated in formal channels. It's not on the podcast. You, you can't just write back and go, oh, shut up and get in the sea, you hack, <laughs> which is really what you should be able to say. But it, um, it was out there. But I think the funny thing with this, um, this particular researcher regularly takes part in, um, research, I think it's called Research in the Pub, something like that. Oh, where... yeah, there's, there's millions of those. There's some of yeah. those in Boston. They're, they're everywhere and it's fantastic. So it's a bunch, bunch of researchers get together and they, they talk about their research in the pub for the punters. So <laughs> this guy in particular literally has experience going to pubs, talking to people um, about oh, that I wouldn't, research. I wouldn't have picked on him. <laughs> like, oh, this, he, he, I forget his name, but he's a fantastic writer and he's an excellent communicator. With the um, with then he regularly communicates his research um, to... Um, um, to to a lot of people uh, in in the lay community, so it's um yeah. So I think being a researcher, you you gotta. I don't think those two things are separate. You can be a science communicator and not be a scientist, but I don't think you can be a scientist and and be be a. It doesn't have to be your full time thing, but you have to be able to do it. Mm. Well, look, every time you write different forms of funding applications, you're gonna have you're gonna have to explain your research in less than technical language in the first place. So it's going to be going to a, a grant committee full of people, and at least one of them will have no direct experience whatsoever in what you're doing. Yeah. So you better get good at that, Jack, because, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going yeah. to happen. And, and was, was you're going to have to write that. A second part uh, to that uh, question as well? Yes. Mario, bless you. What do you think about institutional social network accounts? I'm uh, thinking about NASA, for example. They do a great job communicating science to people. But it's not science per se. Institutional accounts. Uh, it's not a terrible idea in, in retrospect. I would, if I had to set something like that up, I would do what the island Twitter does. Do you know what the island Twitter does? 
they they give it to a random citizen, kind of like Sweden does. Is that what they do? Yes, yes. That is exactly what I do. I would give it to a grad student, and I would give it to an emeritus professor, and they would be in pure maths, and in sociology, and then in art history, and then in uh, like physical dance education, and then I would swing it back around to the sciences and keep it moving. You know, every week here, we don't expect you to tweet all the time, but we expect you to apply and get keen about it and be the official face of the university, not say anything too stupid, and then I would let them post whatever the hell they wanted. Introduce themselves, and then um, throw out some stuff from their own perspective, because doing that is not a great use of someone's time. If you're going to get someone to do that full-time, if you're going to be sending out multiple things a day, you know, considering how many people are going to end up following you, you're going to have a lot of... If you're going to go out and, and quarterback that, you're going to end up mopping up a lot of shit. Mm. That could be half... That could be a part-time job for someone if they're doing it all the time. Mm. Yeah, the last I, thing we need is to be giving out more money to administrators. Yeah. Give it give it to the give it to the scientists. And I know there's a great Twitter account called Real Scientists, which um, gives... Is that thought. like serious academics? Uh... <laughs> no, not we're, like that. We're serious academics. We are. We are very, uh, very serious academics. But for this account, they give it to a new science. This is a really broad spectrum of scientists, and they just talk about their work. And it's really cool to hear completely different perspectives. You'll have some some marine person who's in the field, some physicist, um, uh, you know, like like a like a throat researcher, like all different stuff. And it's really cool to hear different perspectives on um on research and um and they they just tweet for the week and it's it's a fantastic account real scientists will uh will post that uh online as well um but um i, I don't i think i think Na- places like nasa they do have i mean with, with their kind of funding they could clearly afford to have one person who is uh who is doing that but i really love um they started um their space the a lot of the stuff they were sending up into space they kind of personalized their account and then voyager was tweeting as Voyager and uh, the thing they sent to the Mars. You can, you can, um, that was also tweeting and uh, millions of followers. It was fantastic. I've landed, you know, stuff like that. It had, had a little personality. Here are some photos. Wish you were here. Yeah. Like, like people I love was, that. The, I like the, um, when they, when they, when they sent the, the little probe to the comet and they yeah. gave them a little face and they did animations. It was excellent, and the thing is, like, uh, it made me very sad because they give him a personality, and then they left him on a comet to die. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you think it through to its logical conclusion, it's actually kind of bleak. It's like yeah. the, you remember the the first animal that went up in space was that dog, Laika. They named it, and it was a, it was a hero in the uh, the USS. It was a hero, or that it either turned into ash or it got suffocated. I mean, it's it's hard to ignore <laughs> the outcome of these things. <laughs> Yeah, but is that it, just it, is that just spending too many years writing death metal lyrics? Is the first thing I think of. It's oh, the dog burned up on re-entry. <laughs> like, oh man, don't 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 think that. But it's, it, it's a, good. It's good because people are people are thinking NASA again. I, th- I think there was a, a, quite a period where they're going, oh, should we really fund it? Um, so they um, they you know they they're getting really good when it comes to their outreach, and people are now thinking, okay, cool, you know, um, we should give some more funding to. Um, to, to NASA and, and the kind of work they're doing because it's been dwindling and uh, really it's the taxpayer who decides and if the taxpayer gets together going this is actually quite important NASA does some really cool stuff um, then um, yeah all for it and it, even for, for different forms of science 
if we actually get it out there to the public that science is important, which it is, but we're kind of biased, then people are more likely to be okay with, you know, we're going we're gonna to increase funding for, for the medical stuff, which everyone agrees with, but with the not so medical stuff, which doesn't necessarily have the, uh, the as clear applications. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah. No, I'm all for the um. I know a few labs now have their own Twitter accounts, which is um, which is uh, which is pretty cool, and and research centers as well, and and they actually get to to share the diversity of the um. Yeah, the research that's, that's that's good. If you're gonna enter a lab, you want to know what it's actually like. If they're out there showing people, the the more open a culture like that is, the less qualms you have about approaching it wanting mm. to talk to it, be involved with it, etc. Mm. And there's plenty of labs that just have no presence together, you know? Yeah. They're not out there. They're not in the cyberspaces, in the tubes <laughs> as, a, as a whole entity. So yeah. you go looking for them and you don't have any sense of community. What's this thing like? But any place that's out there that people are all making contributions to what it all looks like, it's a pretty good look. Hmm. I completely agree. Yeah. It's like any lab when you go there and you ask people, like, what's it like to work here when no one else is listening? And they tell you. You know? I would, I would, I would lay a bit of money that any place that's got a Twitter account will say, well, it's, it's, it's friendly and open. And in, in general, the, the barriers are less severe than they are elsewhere. Hmm. Because God knows they can be all over the place. Mm. Some places they'll fall over themselves to talk to you for absolutely no reason than they're trying to be good community members and they've got an intrinsic interest in what they do and other places are just full of cross-eyed pricks. <laughs> and you roll your dice and you take your chances. Mm. Well, we might leave it there on the phrase cross-eyed pricks, hey? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Yes, and, uh, thanks for listening. I don't try and sound sarcastic when I do that. I just that's just how my voice. That's just how it comes out. No, I know. Yeah. Like Dan, Dan has a tick when it comes to the phrase "really appreciate." He really appreciates a lot of things. But I do. Uh, I know. I do appreciate See, that's the, the problem. Listeners. It just sounds insincere when you say it in the same way over and over again, like a like a child's toy that's got stuck on one of its talking <laughs> loops. But we do, we do. It is um, it's 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 seen. We see mm. you. We do. Uh, and we both we we both enjoy it very much. It's, Thank you. It's good. It's good for the soul. We will uh, see you all next week then. Yes, we will. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs>